0: Uh, starting in Acts 22.30. On the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, Claudius unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, "'commanded the soldiers to go down "'and take him away from among them by force "'and bring him into the barracks. "'The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, "'Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, "'so you must also testify in Rome.' "'When it was day, the Jews made a plot "'and bound themselves by an oath "'neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul.'
1: thank you mr Willette. appreciate that good morning everybody if there and by the way that was a lackluster good morning and i i allow for that on the uh, on the heels of night to shine if there are about 150 people you see doze off during the sermon it's not because i'm boring right um But but mostly because of the energy that was exuded all week I really want to thank all of you that participated on Friday night But also those of you that helped us get ready all week long Not everybody that had a hand in this was able to be present on Friday night And so it's just really incredible how the body of Christ came together We have volunteers from the community People who are not part of our church go through our process of signing up And getting approved and everything to participate It's just an incredible, incredible thing and then when it's highlighted by... Um, I know Pastor Gary said it, that the Spirit of God was here, and he definitely was. But the soul of Justin Bieber made an appearance, too, um, in our dear friend Ronnie, who nailed... Uh, is it? Is it, I don't know, is it just called Baby? All right. I hadn't heard the song before, but now I cannot get it out of my head. Uh, because Bieber... Like a little, you know, thing just gets burned within your brain and stuff. But Ronnie, you did amazing. But I also have to give credit to Lisa Wade and myself, because we did a duet on Want It Dead or Alive, right? Oh man, we rocked the house down. I'll tell you what. <laughs> JJ, of course, we all know JJ, showed out as always in his brilliant suit. Uh, had some sort of a club remix to I Can Only Imagine, which was like, if you've never heard that song, I mean, he was dancing on stage while singing I Can Only Imagine because his mix had that tempo and that beat. So it's really pretty incredible, pretty amazing night. So thank you all who participated. Please consider, um, you know, start marking your calendars for this time next year. Um, To participate I know we had a lot of people come up for the first time Had never volunteered for Night to Shine We had a lot of guests that have never been before Some of those guests have decided to join us this morning for worship So I think we should welcome them and thank them for being with us today too So it's just such a blessing all all the way around And so uh, this kind of fatigue and tired and sleepiness is a good thing And like I said, I endorse it So it's okay if I see you drifting and nodding I always give the students a pass. Today they don't get a pass. It's everybody else now. Alright. Well, let's get into this text that was read for us here out of Acts 23 primarily. Uh, Corey Tenboom is a, a famous figure of someone who has endured the Holocaust and she and her sister as young children uh, survived concentration camps and learned valuable lessons on how to trust in the God who could have eliminated all of the persecution and all the and all the trouble they experienced, God could have said, "That's never going to happen. We never would have experienced the Holocaust." And yet, in despite all of those, con, the, the, all that confusion and those ponderings of why, Lord, would you allow this to happen? Uh, Corey and her sister grew in their acknowledgement of the fact that the Lord works things out that we can't understand. And she's been very honest throughout her life. She's now passed, but she's been very honest throughout her life of her own shortcomings of wrestling with that knowledge is we would all give her a pass and say, yeah, you're in a concentration camp. We get it that there are times of doubt. But she always pointed to the sovereignty of her Savior. And she has this tiny little statement that's going to set us uh, going forward here this morning, which is, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. And this, no doubt, was a lesson that she had to revisit over and over and over again. When everything would seem helpless and hopeless, what would God possibly have in all of this that I can glean from, that that I can hang on to, that he will hold me together and that his purposes will be fulfilled in my life? Heaven may not have problems. God doesn't have problems, but we certainly do. I could, If I went around the room and just said, hey, give me a list of your problems, even if you were a little bit sheepish about it, like, hey, people got it worse than me, if I pressed you enough, you could give them up with at least a handful of things that are bugging you, plaguing you right now. We have problems. And the success in the, the life of the followers of Jesus Christ is not that we learn to shed those problems as some would have you think that the less problems that you have, the godlier you must be. But instead, we grow in a steady confidence that he's capable of holding us together through them. That's where our growth in this Christian life is seen is that, yeah, with all the stuff swirling around, they don't defeat me. They don't haunt me. They don't discourage me from keeping my eyes on the one who holds me together. As we've been going through the book of Acts, if you're not familiar, because you're maybe here for the first time or first couple of times or something, the book of Acts is in the New Testament, so about two-thirds of your way into the into the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, do not panic. We have um, a screen that will have the verses that we'll be reading through, as you saw during the reading earlier. But in the book of Acts, it's really the accounts of how the church was beginning, how what we've said is like a, a starting of a spark or a flame that has flourished and, is, and has consumed the world for generations and does not seem to have any signs of stopping. And so we as a church are studying the book of Acts because we want to know how are we helping, how are we aiding, how are we participating in the spread of this gospel flame that is still setting the world on fire. And up to this point, we've really focused on a lot of the things that you and I can do to participate in that. What you and I can do to um, aid its uh, burning flame, to experience it in our own life. And that is certainly good stuff. There is always an application to the, to the uh, learning of God's Word. But today's text, there isn't a lot of what we do in this process. If you look at just the story and what's happening with Paul, some of the things that were read for us, some of the other things that we'll peek into going forward, there's kind of a passivity that we have as people as we look at this story. There isn't a lot of like deep doctrine going on or anything. It's kind of like you sit back and watch God at work. That's what Paul is experiencing. Paul is in chains. Paul is imprisoned And he's just going to watch God have a hand in the events that he has called Paul to do. There's not much Paul can do about this. There's a couple of techniques, a couple of wise moments and things he can capitalize on. We'll see him do that, and that certainly is something we should be aware of. But for the most part, he's just sitting back and watching God at work. As we've seen in Paul's life, as we've seen in Scripture story after Scripture story. We're not necessarily passive in this. It's not like we don't get to participate, but instead we're called to trust God's providence and experience his presence and recognize that as as, as enough. That is all we really need. We need God's hand to move and we need his presence to be with us. Outside of that, there isn't a lot that's in our control, right? There's not a lot that's up to us. So as we dive a little bit into this text here, let's look at the first point I'd like to make for us is that in our turmoil, trust the steady hand of God's providence as we see Paul doing. So what can we do? What work do we bring to the table? What effort do we bring? It's trust in this particular instance and should be in all instances. Providence itself is not really a common word that we use. It's not even a biblical word if we're being honest. You're going to look in your concordance and say, where can I find verses on providence? You're not going to find it as a word. It doesn't really show up in the scriptures. It's a doctrinal formation of all the other things that we know about what God does. So it's not even really a biblical word, but it is definitely a biblical theme. In our typical language, we use words like God intervened. Or he provided a miracle or he rescued me from or he rescued this person from or saved us from. And all of those things are true and they are um, active and we recognize those things. But they also give us a sense of, per, of temporary or urgent interactions that God has. He comes, here's a miracle, here's a protection, here's an intervention. And it comes and goes. Providence has a bit of a different take on God's working comes from two words put together, uh, pro and video. So if you want to start a business, that could be a good name for a business, pro video. And in fact, let's come up with a concept. Uh, Any of you can just take this and run with it for free if you want. I'm not in this to make money. But maybe we should rent out movies, put them on tapes and discs and Have it like a store and people can... And there's a young enough crowd here that some of you are going, that sounds like a lame idea. (laughs) It wasn't for a while. It just became lame once the digital world took over. So no, pro and video. Pro means before. Video means to see. Makes sense. So there's an aspect of providence that we need to see that is God seeing ahead of what can and will take place, but we also know that his wisdom and his ability make it that he will do something about it. Not just seeing it ahead like a fortune teller, but actually having the strength and the omniscience to do something about it. Miracles are God's supernatural intervention into the natural. So we recognize oftentimes when a miracle happens because this kind of thing doesn't happen very often. And when it's a miracle, it means it's not necessarily something that fits into the natural world, at least in our explanation of it. It might be something that we see. It might be something that we feel. But but miracles are something of a supernatural happening that God does into our natural sphere. Providence, though, is God's presence and his activity behind the scenes of the natural well, we might look at it as there's a supernatural drama that's playing out in the natural world, whether we see it or feel it or not. It's constant. It's moving. God's uh, mechanisms, His wisdom, it's always churning. There's always something happening that He is orchestrating even as we go about our busy lives kind of forgetting His existence from time to time. This is a picture of God's providence. We see, we've seen so many stories of this. Throughout the scriptures, we know that Joseph, who is the, um, the, uh, the, the young brother in the book of Genesis, who is maligned by his older brothers because they're sick of him being dad's favorite. They're sick of him rubbing it in their faces and stuff. And so they, out of their jealousy, sold him into slavery. God had a plan all along to prepare a rescue for Israel when the famine would hit. In order for that to happen, Joseph needed to be dislodged, displaced from his family and put in places that he didn't want to be or wish to be like prison and and other things and falsely accused for things he didn't do. And all of that led to eventually he got to interpret some dreams and got to be put in a place of power and position and was uh, put in second in command in Egypt, providing the salvation or the rescue during the famine for his country. Remember, we said a couple weeks ago that don't worry if God wants you to be in Egypt, he will, have you, he will give you seven jealous brothers who will sell you into slavery. That would be an example of Providence. We have Esther, and her story is told of also being in, in, a, in a, an environment, a situation that no young woman would wish upon herself or want to be in, and all of these things look like tragedies, and they look like the kinds of things that nobody should have to go through, and yet at some point then her cousin says to her, Hey, Essie, if you know the VeggieTales version, um, Essie, Esther, um, perhaps you were put here for such a time as this, to rescue our people from, from oppression and slavery. And now you have the ear of the king. You can do something about it. And so she encouraged eventually stepped into that opportunity and did what the Lord had put her in that position to be able to do. And it turned out to be the salvation of her people. I could say the same thing about Abraham with his son offering uh him before the Lord, getting ready to sacrifice him, and the angel holds his hand and says, Not now, there's other things that we're gonna do. God will provide for himself the sacrificial lamb. And we've seen it all through scripture, and now we see it showing up contemporarily in our in our study in the life of Paul. The part that we skipped over From last week to this week because it was a a much of a retelling of things we already knew about Paul's story and his testimony. There was one aspect of it though that I just want to peek at because he was paying the price for testifying and he's in uh, chains and he's about ready to get put on the rack. I mean, they're going to stretch him out and torture him and everything and it's about to happen. And then this happens in Acts 22 verse 22 says up to this up to this word they listen to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and and flinging uh, dust into the air, I mean, they were freaking out, right? As we always see the reaction. He says a few words and they just lose their minds. The tribune ordered him to be uh, brought into the, the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. When they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And again, procedure comes in to rescue Paul. We've seen this before. Bureaucracy, not being able to break their own rules, and all of a sudden Paul or those that are serving with him are rescued from greater danger. Paul just says this torture, this punishment by our own laws, Roman citizens isn't supposed to happen to me. You can question me. You can even convict me in other ways, but not this way. So, they're like, get him off the rack, boys. He's got a point there. And so he's spared in that moment. He's spared from the, the Jerusalem. I mean, the um, the mob before he arrives in Jerusalem, and they say, "Hey, we're we're actually not supposed to have meetings like this." It says it here in section two point B X whatever. Oh yeah, okay. Send the crowds home. Let the dust settle. A lot of these things, a lot of these interventions are fairly mundane happenings of God. Things that the Lord would have put in process a long time before that would eventually show up at just the right time to rescue His servant. This is the common pattern that we see from God's providence. It shows up at just the right way, at just the right time, sometimes with great fanfare, sometimes with very little recognition, and He just keeps the wheels rolling. So now we come to him being imprisoned and being under lock and key with this uh, Roman tribune, this guy named that we'll call Claude, is Claudius Lysias. And he's frustrated by the accusations that are being brought, but there's really no facts. He's like, I still don't know what Paul is being accused of. So he says, let's get him before the Jews again. Let's get him before their leadership and see if I can sort this stuff out. And that's why Paul is before them. That's why in the text that we just had read for us, he's starting to do a little bit of verbal battle back and forth. The high priest is there. Ananias is there. But Paul starts off in uh, verse 1 looking intently. He's staring them down. Now think about this. Paul knows he's come finally to Jerusalem. He knows it's not looking good. The Lord has intervened in a couple of ways, but still the pressure is on and the future doesn't look bright when it comes to his freedom and his ability to just roam about and minister as he wants. The Holy Spirit has been pressing upon him as he's testified. Everywhere I go, I'm expecting chains and imprisonment and beatings and all that kind of stuff. So he's not necessarily thinking that this is his get out of jail free moment. So what does he do? He stares them all down one by one making it more and more uncomfortable, letting sort of the heaviness of the of the moment. This is an early morning meeting. It's dimly lit. It's kind of like a rushed council. Let's get this together and get these questions uh, flowing again. And he, instead of just going on the attack, stares them all down and says, Brothers, I, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. They knew, just like you and I know, that Paul doesn't have a perfect track record as far as um, living a the, what we would call the good Christian life. Paul wasn't always a Christian. If you don't know Paul's history, Paul was actually what, what we would call a zealot who went um, on the attack against the growing church as this flame is spreading and Acts is recording this. Paul says, I'm going to go and snuff out the flame. He was uh, an official representative of Jewish law and he was zealous for it. He was passionate for it. And his heart was not yet arrested by Jesus Christ. And so he chases down, he persecutes and, and, and oversees the killing of church leaders. And yet he stands before them and says, up to this point, I've lived in all good consciousness. That should tell us a few things. For one, it tells us that he can actually say that to this audience and mean it. Because as far as a Jew goes, he, he was winning on their side up until he was no longer on their side. He was doing all the things that the old laws and traditions wanted him to do and protecting it with an urgency. And so he said, even as a Jew standing before this audience, I can say in all good consciousness, I gave my life to the same beliefs that you have. And he says, and now I'm being held on account of believing in a resurrection, which was a great little play there just to stoke the whole thing up and have those two sides that are part of the same council start fighting with one another. But he says, I've always lived with a good conscience. Even before coming to Christ, his conscience was clear because he thought he was doing the Lord's work. The Lord had to intervene and say, no, you're not. You think you are, but you're persecuting me. You're moving against me. My plan is moved on to the Gentiles and you are trying to stifle it. So then Paul's conscience changes because Jesus interrupts and intervenes and he gives his life to Christ and his conscience remains clear because now he's living his life with a king of kings and Lord of lords. He's told him personally and called him by name. That, of course, isn't going to work with them, but it should also tell us this is that our consciences can be pretty good with our own actions, even if we're in the wrong. Remember, Paul had a clear conscience before he came to Christ, even as he saw the most faithful and beautiful servant of the church at that time, Stephen, dying by having rocks being thrown on him and crushing him. With a clear conscience, Paul said, this is for the Lord, this is good, and was satisfied with his work. That should tell us something about our consciences. That as, as helpful as it is to have a good and clear conscience, it's not always the most trustworthy source of information, is it? We often hear that we are to live a life of no regrets. We often hear that we're supposed to be true to ourselves, which is getting at just as long as your conscience is clear. As long as you're okay with you, that's all you'll need in life. Be true to yourself. Paul could say, up to this point, I've had a clear conscience, but I was on the wrong side for all, most of my life. Our conscience can be what the scripture calls being seared or being calloused, being convinced that the position that we're taking is the right one and therefore should not be trusted as the ultimate authority. I'm glad Paul had a clear conscience He teaches us how to have one, which we'll address. But also I can see in Paul's life that his conscience lied to him for a time. I don't know how many times I've had people tell me and the other pastors here at the church and stuff that the thing that they knew they were about to do that we could all see was something that was going to wreck their lives or the lives of the people they loved or were around them because they felt, what do we always say? I feel a peace about it. That because they felt a peace about it, they ran off to do. And we're all like, the Bible doesn't say that you should do that. God will not be pleased with that action. This is going to tear apart the world in which you know. No, I feel a peace. I am convinced. I have a conscience. If God didn't want me to, he'd be speaking against it. And I'm like, I know I'm not God, but I'm trying to speak against it right now. And I know I'm not alone. There'd be so many other people that are following the Lord that would speak against it. You're just not listening. Why? Because you have a peace. Your conscience is seared. It's calloused. It's it's moved into the corner of the action that you want to take, and no one can convince you otherwise. I don't know if you've ever had a time like that in your life. I, I know I have several times. And there's be a lot of stories of some very catastrophic things that I've seen happen, and the people that come out of them go, I don't know what I was thinking. I was was one track minded. I I don't even recognize that person now that I look back because they've had an awakening and the Lord's broken their heart and softened their conscience and got them back on track. And they say, how am I capable of making that kind of decision? When our conscience serves as an ultimate authority, it can so easily lead us astray. I heard somebody refer to it, it's like a sundial, you know, in those old ancient times, they'd have that triangular thing on the ground and stuff, and so the sun would come out and move and help people tell time. Conscience is like a sundial because it only works when there's sun shining on it. Your sundial does you no good at night. And so if our consciences, if our hearts, if our minds are living in darkness, there's no way for us to tell which side is which, no way to tell for us what times that we're living in or what the Lord might be up to or what opportunities I might have in my life because I only see things the way I want to see them. Peter had said, and this is a man who really, I'm sure, wrestled with his conscience through his several failures, trying to do the right thing but never able to get out of his own way he later on as a much more mature follower of Christ would say that it's important for us to have a good conscience so that when we are slandered or anything along these lines happens to us, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. This is just one example of the peace and the blessing that comes in our life when our consciences are clear, when they have been basking in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ and he's allowed us to purge some of those or keep short accounts of our of our sinful thoughts and our sinful motives and say, Lord, just take that out of my life. And as that account gets shorter and shorter and shorter and we live with clearer consciences, we have all these benefits in our lives, like being able to put our head down on our pillow at night and sleep not worry about who might be coming after us or what they might be saying or doing about us. He says it would be important for you to have a good conscience because when people accuse you, as they always will, you know in your heart of hearts, I am not guilty of what they're accusing me of. I know that I'm speaking to a, a varied audience. Some of you are regular students of God's Word. Some of you are... Wanting to be regular students of God's word. Some of you are new to this whole experience and saying, I just don't know what to expect as I walk through the door. So whatever part of that um, continuum you find yourself on, the question for all of us is how do we get a good conscience? For us, the answer is, and really for all, the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We receive the forgiveness of sins that we can't seem to scrub away We can't seem to get rid of, we in our own humanness are not able to put away those things that give us such heavy burdens on our mind and in our soul. And Jesus comes and says, I've seen it all, I know it all, I knew it before you even did it. And by the way, you did it because of the way that you were born, not just because you weren't guilty the moment you did it. You you started off this way, you were doomed from the very get-go, as is the nature of sin so I died for that I knew what you would do I know what you continue to do and I died for it anyway because I am perfect and holy and I am God become man I can represent you I can carry your sins to the cross I can die for you because God says that without the shedding of blood there is no payment for our sins because of the life that the blood represents so we receive forgiveness of sins that comes from Christ's finished work on the cross. We have power to walk in that clear conscience because he rose from the dead. He, he beat death by coming out of the grave. Peter also says that baptism in this part representing that decision to follow Christ, which corresponds to something he was saying before, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul's little statement of, to this point, I've lived my life in all good conscience, puts some things in perspective for us. I'm sure he did have a good conscience. I'm sure it was one that was earned. I don't like using that word, but earned as 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 a fact of his faithfulness living to the Lord. But he was recognizing that that isn't my only thing. Just because I can sit here and feel like I'm not guilty doesn't mean I'm not guilty. He says, I know who I serve. He's the one who's declared me innocent. I like how Paul kind of slips up here. There's been a lot of debate as to whether or not when he says, you remember that part that was read for us and it says, uh, Lord, the Lord will strike you, you whitewash wall. We're like, ooh, burn. What's a whitewash wall? What is he talking about? <laughs> I know it sounds saucy, but I don't know what the insult is. Doesn't really matter, but the point is, is that That it it was an insult. It was talking about how they were phonies, that they were just prepared on the outside. And this is something that Jesus accused them of in his time walking on the earth. He said, you're like empty tombs. You know, we're supposed to think that you're so beautiful and ornate on the outside, but there's nothing living inside. You're like, you've contained dead men's bones. And so, so Paul is saying, well, you know, he gets punched in the mouth, which is what affects us all, Right? I mean what it uh, Tyson said it right you know anybody who thinks they have a plan once they get punched in the mouth their plans change and Paul is I think showing us some vulnerability some of the debate is that Paul was justified in standing up to them and saying hey you know you go ahead and strike me if you want but god's going to strike you back you phony and maybe because he saw Jesus say that before, when when they were when they were coming out to oppose His teaching and everything, He dressed down the Jewish leaders. It's not like Jesus always went, mm, "I can't say anything." <laughs> he wasn't that. He wasn't mousy. But as Jesus was marching towards His death and receiving that payment that was coming, that He was willingly laying down, what does the Scripture say about Him? Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed when he, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Peter doubles down and says when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, man, Paul was, had plenty of reason... And a human excuse to respond the way he did, not just because he got punched in the mouth, but Ananias' high priest was the wicked of the wicked. He was the worst high priest. Even the, the Jews eventually overthrew him and said, we just can't stand this guy. He's stealing our tithes. He's sucking up to the Romans. He's just, he's not a high priest. He's got a political position and he's milking it for all it's worth. Some would say that Paul's response was like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize that that was the high priest. In other words, he's not acting or looking like one, so I didn't think that was him. Like, there's a, a heavy sarcasm that comes from Paul. I, I don't think that is what's happening here. I could be wrong. I think what's happening here is Paul showed his human side for a moment. And I think, because of his quick reaction... To confess and say, "Ah, my bad," and he quotes the law that says you are not you are not allowed to speak evil against your leaders. <clears throat> it's like he got a hold of himself right away, and Paul had a moment of humanity that I think would have kind of kind him to go, "Okay, this is why I am not Jesus." He was really good at this kind of thing. Paul, being ever aware of Jesus' example and wanting to just walk in his footsteps and do everything like him, had the perfect opportunity to do the exact same thing that Jesus did and didn't. Therefore, I think it was a slip-up. I think he reacted. I think we would all say, yeah, good for you, Paul. Tell these phonies where to go. I don't think that's what he's doing. He instantly catches himself and confesses his sin. Why wouldn't he? He's seen God's hand move all around him. Right now he's in chains. Right now he's getting punched in the mouth. But he's seen all of God's track record just prove over and over and over again, I will not let you slip through my fingers. I've got you. The greater our trust is in God's providence, the greater success we will have at at not digging deeper holes. You've heard that phrase, when you're in a hole, quit digging. This is what we do with our mouths, with our actions, with all kinds of things. We're in a bad spot and we make it worse because we don't trust in the providence, the moving hand, and the guiding machinations of God to say, I've got this. You do not have to defend yourself. I've got you. And I love how Paul's quick reaction to that proves that he struggles with this like you and I do, that he needs forgiveness for those moments of slip up. I say this to encourage us because a lot of times we think, oh, that's it. I've done it. I've blown it. There's no recovery. I'll never get that back. And that's often the way it feels when words leave our mouths or something. It's like, I can't get it back in. But the reality is, is that God's grace covers these moments. And what he wants to see us do is to catch ourselves quicker. To let the destruction of that not get so far out, to bring it back in, to have the courage, to have the humility to be able to say, "Eh, you're right, you're right, that was my bad. I should not have said that to the high priest. Even though off to the side, he wants to just say, not much of a high priest, but he doesn't. We want him to. We want Paul's flesh to stand up for himself. We want him to make a name for himself and to remind them, hey, I'm the mighty Paul. I've done a lot of things here. You can't just treat me like a common criminal. This is what we want Paul to do. Instead, what we see Paul doing is confessing almost instantly that he was in the wrong. And all the time, Paul is being followed As he's going to find out by a cloud of death. Let's look in verse 23, uh, in in, uh, verse 12. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor to drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So they're saying, look, we're not even going to have another meal until this guy's put down. And 40 people is not a small entourage, not a small conspiracy. Now we're just throwing out Jewish law and piety and we're doing this in our religious cloaks and all this kind of stuff. They're like, no, we're just like straight up mobbing this thing. We're going to put the hit out on Paul. We're going to see it done. And we're not even going to have dinner until it's over. They just lost their minds. There's no more. Uh, there's no more order. There's no more even trying to pretend to do this in a godly manner. They're just going to get the job done and hope that God allows them to uh, have some grace or forgiveness, maybe down the road. Who knows? <clears throat> and all Paul wanted to do, <clears throat> excuse me, was to encourage the church in Jerusalem, and then get back to Rome. He's like, I, I came to do uh, a certain thing in Jerusalem. It was being accomplished in a way he didn't think would happen. Remember, he wanted to bring the the church, the church together, both Jew and Gentile. He brought a lot of money to encourage their unity. He had raised it from the Gentile churches to say, look, thank you, Jewish church, for all your sacrifice and persecution. So he comes and he gives them a sort of a bond in an unexpected way. They see him getting shackled and beaten and imprisoned and having to defend himself and getting... Um, uh, uh, His punishment being postponed by the hand of the Lord and all these things is starting to unify the church, but it isn't the way he wanted it to go. And now he wants to get back to Rome so he can see the brothers and sisters there and encourage them. And that's looking less and less likely as he's being faced uh, with this angry mob. Maybe you've heard the story before of the man that found himself stranded on a deserted island because his boat motor had quit and he drifted and finally found himself on this on this island. He hadn't seen all the borders of it yet. It was a pretty substantial island, but he knew he was all alone. He knew he was without rescue. So after setting up a a hut and shelter and things, then he went off and started fishing and hunting, trying to make his livelihood and say, I'm just going to wait here faithfully until rescue comes. Day after day, it wasn't coming, and found himself out there fishing, and he said, okay, I'm going to return home. When he comes home, he sees that his hut has burned to the ground, and he thinks, well, this isn't a setback I can't afford to have. I just started figuring things out, and now I have no shelter, and then the next day, a, a vessel comes and parks at, at a distance, and they come, and they rescue him, and he goes, why are you here? I don't, I can't even comprehend. I would given up that you were even going to come. They said, well, we obviously followed your smoke signal. You see, this is the way that the providence of God works: is the hut burns, and we go tragedy, mistake, frustration. <laughs> My hut burned down. God says, "Yeah, I know. I needed something to beg your rescue to come over and help you out." All Paul wanted to do is to go and encourage the church. Instead, he's doing it through chains and imprisonment and things. But Paul's not. I mean, God's not done with Paul's ministry. When it looked bleak and these 40 guys are putting the hit out on Paul, all of a sudden, verse 16 shows up. This is the way providence happens. All of a sudden, I know this sounds more like the miraculous, the the momentary, the temporary. Look at this, verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Did you know that Paul had a nephew? Did you know, Zach? I didn't know that Paul had a nephew. I've read verse 16 bunches of times as I've read through the Bible. Never once occurred to me that Paul had, I don't think anything about Paul's sister. I don't think about where she lives. Why did his nephew happen to be there? <clears throat> we don't have, uh, you know, Third Corinthians written by Paul's nephew. There's no other biblical account of the greatness of Paul's nephew. We don't know why he even existed. We don't know what he was up to. But I can tell you right here in verse 16, he needed to do this one little task. He needed to show up and say, Uncle Paul, they're coming to kill you. See you later. See you at Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Who knew Paul had a nephew? And out of nowhere, because God, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. It doesn't feel very miraculous that he would have a nephew. <laughs> it seems like procreation. That seems biological to me. But he had a nephew. And that nephew was in the right place at the right time to hear the Scary message went and did the right thing and delivered it. God has plans for Paul's life. Paul can't do much about it right now, but God's not done. Providence is always at work. We've seen it in Acts 17 when the the presentation to those who didn't believe in the Lord and in the gospel message, they were told that in him, that is in God, we live and we move and we have our being. In Colossians 1, we see that by him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1, that he is the sustainer of all things. Proverbs 16, that the Lord determines our steps. And I love Psalm 115, that the Lord does whatever pleases him. You know, when we just think we're in control and we think we know the end of all things, we don't like that verse. God does whatever pleases him. But when my hut burns and the vessel comes and rescues me, I'm like, God, you do whatever pleases you, don't you? You're just showing off now. We talked about it at Night to Shine, that we have a God who shows off in his brilliant splendor and creation and all these things. And this is what he's doing in his providence. He's doing whatever pleases him. Whatever pleases him is taking care of you and me. That makes him happy. God's providence really is a combination of So many things that we understand about the Lord, it's a combination of his sovereignty, the fact that he can and does control all things, that he predestines towards a certain outcome, that we can trust that he knows the end of all things, that in his wisdom, he doesn't make any mistakes. He's not just figuring it out as it goes. He's got it figured out. And ultimately, we know he's good because he has our best interests and his own glory at heart. When we start to rely on providence, we are freed from our bitterness because instead of thinking and rehearsing about all the wrongs being done against us, we start to chalk it up to that must be a stop along the way. That must be something that happened to me for something else to happen later. And we start to get hope that maybe the Lord is putting bigger pieces of the puzzle together that we don't see. That gives us a perspective to our tragedies and to our ailments and to all the things that happen in our lives. It begins to fuel our courage because now I can walk into situations rather than just begging God to keep me safe in it. Now I'm starting to trust him towards all outcomes. Whatever you want to do in this, I'm okay with, I think. (laughs) That's kind of what I say. I'm okay with it, Lord, I think. (laughs) So give me the grace as I walk through this. Hold me up, make me strong because I will be human all over this thing and tap out. And it gives us a deeper understanding of the salvation that we've provide, been provided. At the beginning of Acts, in the preaching of the gospel, we were told that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And we'd say, what a tragic story. But we know that that, that um, uh, sacrifice and that, that capture and that turmoil resulted in our salvation because Jesus willingly laid his life. He's not a victim. He wasn't murdered per se. That was the intention of humanity. But he had given his life. He has sacrificed it. Secondly, I know that was all just the first point and we're almost done. Let me just make one brief point which I think kind of ties all of this together and it's found in one verse that in our turmoil, we trust the quiet presence of Jesus, and we see it showing up right in the middle of this thing in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Simplest thing, right? Jesus actually shows up. He's done this before with Paul. He actually shows up and is present with Paul. It isn't that, you know, Paul had a a vision of him or anything. It says that he came. And it almost says it kind of -of matter-of-factly. The following night, the Lord stood by him. Again, it's like, i got to read that again. He shows up again, sits with Paul in his imprisonment and says, Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So let me just break down very simply what is so encouraging about this. Well, Jesus is sharing a message of hope. He says, take courage. Sometimes we just need to be reminded and told by somebody we respect, somebody we fear or something. We just need to be told, buck up. You can do this. Stop wimping out. You're going to make it. Just toughen up about this. And Jesus showing up and saying something that simple to Paul was enough for him to just be like, okay, I'm ready to go. Bring it on, Claudius, or, or or Ananias, or anybody. Doesn't care. He doesn't care what name is on his uh, on his attacker. A, count, uh, a mob of forty people. I don't care. Bring it on. Where'd you get your courage? Well, Jesus said to to act like a man, to face up, to show up. So I'm going to do it. And then he says, "You're going to testify in Rome." So we know that means that his life doesn't end tomorrow in Jerusalem. We know that the mob, just by Jesus saying that, isn't going to succeed in their plan. They're not going to catch up to him. We've already established that that's where Paul wanted to be anyway. He's going to Rome, but again, in a different way than what he wanted to. He's going to arrive in a different coach. Uh, He's going to arrive in different duds. He's going to arrive in Rome differently than he expected. But he's going to get snuck out then in the middle of the night because the the guy that uh, paul 's nephew went and told about they, they made sure that the the leadership knew about it, and they said well we don't this is not the way we treat our prisoners, this is not what paul deserves we 're going to move them on we 're going to go have them meet with other people and so they said let 's ship them out to Rome, so they do it under the cover of darkness so they can get him out and so Jesus says, this is going to happen to you you 're going to get to Rome, and you 'll testify so not only is his message a message of hope that you uh, live to die another day. You notice Jesus didn't say, hey, by the way, your shackles are off. The prison doors are open. We've seen that already in Acts. Jesus didn't say this is all behind you. But he says it's not going to happen in this moment. It's not going to happen in this way. And somehow that's enough for Paul. He's giving him a message of purpose. He says you're going to have work to do. The same testimony and the same way you went about it here, you're going to be able to do in Rome. And that matters to Paul. Why? Because his aim and his ambition is to be pleasing and effective to the Lord. We've seen that in his other writings. He wants to be useful to Jesus. And so even in his death or imprisonment, if he can be more useful, that energizes him, that fires him up. So Jesus is speaking his love language by saying, you're going to be able to talk more. More and more people will listen to the story of how I have worked in your life and the testimony that you'll be able to point towards about me. Our hope in turmoil is inextricably linked to our desire to encourage others. There is no greater fuel for your, uh, uh, your surviving the difficulties in your, in your life other than having this, this unquenchable motivation. I want someone else to gain some encouragement from this. I don't want to be the only one to go through something and be able to say, well, thank you, Lord. That meant something in my heart. I want other people to see, okay, that's what it means to follow Christ passionately. That's what it means to follow him faithfully. When you start to desire that, then all of a sudden, everything you're going through, you feel like this is useful for somebody else. It allows us more fuel to be able to endure the difficulties that we have. This was what motivated Paul. You mean even those in Rome, even if I get more beatings, more whatevers, you mean more people will hear about how good you've been to me? I'm in. And then let's not skip over the fact that Jesus showed up. That there was a presence of Jesus that brought peace to Paul. Just being there. We say it a lot, right, in, Christian, in our Christian ease, our language and stuff. We say, oh, Jesus was with me in this, or he was with me in that. You ever stop to really explain or dwell on how you know that? What that language would actually sound like to somebody who does not have a clue of what you're talking about? What do you mean God was with you? How would you explain that? Because you know it's profound. You know it's real. But if you processed it out? When Jesus is present with us, what we really mean by that? Just being with somebody brings a lot of encouragement, doesn't it? Especially when you're tripped up on, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help them. I don't know how to solve this problem. But I, I'm not afraid of the moment so that I keep myself away. I'm willing to be near. I'm willing to be present. And then so many times people will say, that's all I needed. And that's what Jesus brings to Paul. So let's look at all of this this way. This idea of our own salvation, it was won through the providential plan of God. It was based on the suffering of Jesus Christ. You and I have eternal confidence in a home in heaven, in the salvation that we have from our long history of sin. Our confidence in a, in, a, in a knowing that we will be with the Lord forever and ever. All of that has come through God's providential hand leading the, the plan of redemption through ter- torture and turmoil. So we can already understand the principle that good can come out of nasty and ugly things. My question for all of us, and especially for those that maybe haven't surrendered their life to the Lord yet or haven't allowed this to be a personal relationship between them and Jesus, is where do you find your peace in your suffering? Without an eternal backdrop, without an understanding of that this all counts for something that the Lord is putting the pieces together behind the scenes, where do you go for hope? In my experience, those that do not have that eternal backdrop just say, it's something you got to gut out. That's just hell on earth. That's just the way life is. Where's the future in that? Where's the peace in that? Where's the hope in that? Does it ring your ears at all that Jesus offers purpose, and he offers a window into his own forgiveness and story of redemption through your suffering? I hope you're listening, and I hope you're ready to respond to him. He's gracious and loving towards you. Because Jesus trusted the Father until the end of his suffering, he is the perfect companion for all of our trouble. No one understands it like he does. No matter what it is you've been through, we say this so many times to others. I don't know. I didn't go through it. It hasn't been, my pain hasn't been exactly like yours, but I know who has. And it's true. No one understands it like, like him. So why wouldn't we invite him To walk with us? Why wouldn't we invite him in to be present with us? There's all kinds of excuses for that, but none of them are good. And because we're given purpose and peace in our suffering, we, you and I, the body of Christ, the earthly representation of God, are called to be present for others in their suffering that being near them in the middle of the night in their jail cells or in the, the turmoil of their heart, that we don't shy away from those uncomfortable and painful moments. Instead, we draw near to them to go through that with them. The more you trouble yourself with the troubles of others, the less your own trouble will trouble you. I'm sorry if that hurt to process. I still don't know if it makes any sense when I wrote it down from the other day. The more you trouble yourself with the troubles of others, in other words, I'm more concerned about what you're going through, I will naturally, maybe it argues argue supernaturally, start to care less about the things that hurt me. Because I'm more fixated on the things you've got to go through. And I want to help you with it. This is what we learn to give to one another. As we see Paul suffering in this situation, we see him trusting the wise and provident hand of God. And we can be encouraged to do the same. Would you please stand and join me for prayer? Lord, you know that because we don't have a mind for eternity, that everything we know has a beginning and an end. It is impossible in our own flesh, in our own thinking, to really trust you 100% for all the things that you can do outside of space and time. But Lord, fortunately, you didn't leave us stuck in only our flesh, in only our human thinking. Lord, you've blessed us and gifted us with your Spirit. So I pray, Lord, as we continue to grow in our trust and our acknowledgement that you do things that we can't explain, that you do things that we don't see, that, Lord, you continue to be patient with us when we give in to the temporary, when we see and panic over just the things that have a beginning and an end. Thank you, Lord, for being our eternal God. Thank you for not walking away the moment we offended you. And yet you saw a plan of salvation through, Lord, that we still benefit from today and we will for all of eternity. Thank you for continuing to care about our lives, that you would work through us and that you would order the events of our days and the events of our years. Thank you for making things count that even hurt us and confuse us so that we don't just have to chalk it up uh, to the things that uh, would equate to a hell on earth. You're bigger than that. Your plan is greater than that. Continue to use us, Lord, as we walk faithfully, trying to trust you in all the ways that you work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.